A little chicken army. Don't forget to wash your hands, Eve. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I said hands, Eve. Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning. This episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army, and thank you so much for tuning in. I am your host, Margot, and for any first-timers, this is a true crime podcast where I focus on murders committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right, I just want to give a shout out to this week's episode producer, Producer Jacqueline. Jacqueline was kind enough to donate to the morale fund, making another week of military murder possible. And I just want to say thank you so much, Jacqueline. All right, guys, I know that I've spent the first two weeks in March or my last two episodes basically going over crimes committed by women. But I want to veer off understanding that it's still March, but there's another big kind of event that goes on in at least one branch of the military. And that is Mustache March. Oh, I despise Mustache March. Before I got on the mic today, I decided to do some research on Mustache March and I discovered that Mustache March is basically a time where all the guys in the Air Force decide that they're going to grow these horrendous looking mustaches. And I, I've always hated it. I think they're, I think very few people can pull off a mustache. So anyway, so I did a little bit of research and I found a website called wearethemighty.com where they actually did a little write-up on Mustache March. So Mustache March honors the famous military fighter pilot, Brigadier General Robin Olds. So he did actually pass away in 2007, but according to the We Are, we Are the Mighty, his boldness and courage are remembered almost as much as his mustache. And so what it says is that during World War II and the Vietnam War, he became a triple ace who scored at least 17 victories. As a fighter pilot, he got tired of the lack of support and the unqualified pilots that he received under his watch. And out of protest against the government, he grew what's known as a handlebar mustache, which is a huge violation of Air Force grooming regulations. Well, word has it that Olds called it his, quote, bulletproof mustache, end quote. I didn't do any further digging to see if he got any type of paperwork, but he basically became the icon. And so every March for the entire month, people start growing their mustaches. Some crazy people even start growing their mustache in February. So they have like a full blown stash in March. I wanted to talk about Mustache March because the serial killer that I'm covering today has a distinguished mustache and he is just a straight up creeper. Although had you known him before you knew he was a serial killer, you would have never thought twice. So True Crime Army, I've been planning this serial killer case since the beginning of my true crime podcasting journey last summer. But as I said earlier, researching a serial killer is daunting and exhausting. I mean, it's literally, that's like an understatement. 
This is a very, very tragic episode. So please don't let your kids listen. And if you're easily triggered by bondage and images of, you know, rape or anything like that, please just don't listen because things in this case get really, really twisted. Of all the serial killers of my time, I think that this guy, in my personal opinion, he is the scariest. And it's the case of BTK. Now, BTK stands for bind them, torture them, kill them. And the man behind BTK is Dennis Rader. He's an Air Force veteran, a Boy Scout leader, a church leader, a husband, and a father. Many of you have heard this story before today, as had I. But it wasn't until I read the book titled Inside the Mind of BTK that I truly understood the evilness of Dennis Rader. This is part one of a three-part series where I will take you through Dennis's life, the murders, and his eventual downfall. And stick around until part three because I will give you the top eight things that all people and women in particular should do to stay safe. That is, according to Dennis Rader. Yup, it's a how to not get murdered list curated by BTK himself. It's actually a pretty good list, so stay tuned. But now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode were a book titled Inside the Mind of BTK, BTK's Guilty Plea and Sentencing Statements to the Court, an oxygen special titled Snapped Notorious BTK Serial Killer, and various other tidbits of knowledge that I have gained throughout the years about this. I'm going to call him a turd. Dennis Lynn Rader was born on March 9th, 1945 in Columbus, Kansas. Dennis was the oldest of four boys born to William and Dorothea Rader. Dennis's father was a former Marine turned power plant worker. So I imagine that he was stern with the kids. I mean, I feel like you have to be to be a parent to four boys. Well, Dennis's parents were the super cool kids in high school. William was a football player and Dorothea was a cheerleader. Dorothea, after she had kids, she became a bookkeeper. Now, the family was religious and they attended the Lutheran church every Sunday. Dennis was about three years old when he began to recognize that he was different. He had these weird thoughts. And while most three-year-olds are out and about trying to watch cartoons, suck their thumbs, or eat tons of gummy bears, or maybe that's just my kid, Dennis started having an obsession with knots and bondage. <sighs> what in the world? Do you know that little voice that you hear at the end of each episode of Military Murder? That's my three-year-old daughter. And according to Dennis, he began to have dark thoughts at the same age as that little voice that you hear at the end, which is crazy. Reports are mixed on what the catalyst of these dark thoughts were. But one report said that Dorothea, one day, she was searching for something between the couch cushions, probably the remote control, when her ring got stuck between the cushions. Just then, Dennis walked in to see his mother struggling. She looked at Dennis and asked for help, and he just stared at her, enjoying the image of his mother just being stuck and helpless. John Douglas, the FBI profiler behind the Netflix series Mindhunter, got access to Dennis's journals to write his book. Now, Douglas reports that Dennis's visual mantra for bondage actually occurred when Dorothea, his mother, got caught up in her bedsheets and she was sobbing and Dennis walked in to find his mother all discombobulated in the sheets, crying and asking for help. 
Now, whatever the cause, by the age of three, Dennis enjoyed the idea of women being bound and helpless. Now, being from Kansas, Dennis grew up on his grandparents' farm. Now, I'm a city girl, so I don't know what farm life is like, but I can imagine that there's roaming animals everywhere, cows, chickens, goats, maybe some cats and dogs. Dennis enjoyed watching his grandmother chase the chickens to whisk their little heads off right off their body. And I imagine that she walked around with some sort of knife to chop them clean off. Well, Dennis would watch as the chickens literally ran around with their heads cut off and the blood was gushing from the neck holes. And then grandma would just fry up the chickens for dinner. Yum. Makes you really want to be a vegetarian, right? At least for me. Now, Dennis documented in his diary that when this happened, he would get butterflies in his belly from seeing the dead chickens. The butterflies were more like sexual feelings, exhilarating all at once. Eventually, though, he began to fantasize about actually kidnapping girls and tying them up really tight. But by all accounts, Dennis lived a fairly basic life. He says there was no sexual abuse and no physical abuse. Although, you know, in cases like this, you really never know. Some people take that to the grave. On the occasion that he got spanked by his mother, he would get the same tingling excitement. But Dennis was quiet, he didn't play sports, and he just kind of kept to himself drawing mummies and playing with strings and cords. He wrote in his journal that one day, he left his house and just began walking. He had these strings and these cords in his pocket. Then as he walked, he got to a secluded area. He laid down and he tied his ankles and then he tied his hands. And of course, if you've ever tried to tie your hands, it's pretty tricky, but he used his teeth to get it just tight enough. Then he literally just laid there until he finally got an erection. This would become a routine thing for Dennis, his secret bondage sessions. And the more that he did it, the more quickly that he would ejaculate without even masturbating. Because for him, the thrill came from being tied up. The helplessness, that was what got him off. And his mommy issues ran deep. He sometimes would steal his mother's underwears and masturbate into them. By the time Dennis was 10, he became obsessed with the Mickey Mouse Club, just like the rest of the world. But Dennis always had to be creepy. He became obsessed with actress Annette Funicello. And years later, during his confession, he would admit that at the age of 10, he dreamt of driving to California, kidnapping Annette and tying her up. And then he would imagine doing all types of sexual things to her. School didn't keep his attention much. He sat in the back of the classroom just daydreaming and fantasizing. Funny because as I was reading about Dennis... He talked about how sometimes in order to get himself to kind of snap out of his dark daydreams, he actually would stick a pencil in the center of a ruler and just spin it and just watch it spinning over and over and over again. And I just kind of laughed. All you needed was a fidget spinner to get your dark, deep desires to kind of disintegrate. And the shocker, because Dennis was so quiet, other parents used to ask their own kids, quote, Why can't you be more like Dennis Rader, end quote. Oh my God, when you guys hear what this guy did, this is why we should never ever look at other people and wish for their life because we never know what they're going through and we never know who they really are. One day, while Dennis was still a young boy, he decided to 
to actually kill something. He decided to start killing animals. He started committing his crimes on stray animals and stray dogs. And what he would do was he would go down to the farm. He would tie the animal to a pole in the barn and then he would torture the animal. He would do this by wrapping a piece of wire around the animal's neck and then tightening it until the animal's eyes were bugging out of their heads. Then he would loosen the wire and he would do this to knock the animal out because he didn't want to kill it because he found pleasure in the torture aspect of his messed up sick game. Then while he played this evil game of tightening it and then loosening it, he would masturbate and then he'd finish off the animal by killing it and disposing of it in the woods. That is sick, guys. Dennis's father eventually taught all of his boys how to fight, and he told them to defend themselves. But it wasn't until the eighth grade that Dennis really had to use his fighting skills. And it was after days and weeks of being bullied, Dennis put his foot down. He told the bully, meet me in the bathroom, and he matched the bully blow for blow until the two boys were just a hot mess. And no one won, but Dennis was never messed with ever again. Now, friends say that Dennis had some dark humor to him as well. He really liked to freak his friends out. And it seems like this is kind of common with serial killers that have friends. He actually did this thing where he volunteered to drive when he was in high school. And so all the boys would pile into his car. Then he began driving. Well, there was a railroad in town. And then what Dennis would do is he would drive actually on the train tracks and he would drive really 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 fast freaking his friends out and then he'd make a horrendously real sounding train horn sound scaring the bejesus out of everyone he thought it was a big joke yet all his friends just sat there horrified well whatever everybody said okay raider's just a jokester and guess what raider was active in both the boy scouts and his church youth group and since he really didn't do any extracurriculars that people actually knew about, he worked as a bag boy throughout high school. Dennis graduated from high school in 1963, and it was after high school graduation that he really began to get bold with his crimes. Because remember, he was committing crimes while he was in high school. He was killing animals, and that's a crime. He just never got caught. After high school, he got really, really bored one day, and he decided to break into his high school. And as he walked around the school late that night, he liked the feeling of violating the law, the feeling of violating the rules. He didn't take anything, but as a teenager, he decided to write some curse words up on the blackboard and he found that exhilarating. Well, due to his involvement with the church, he got accepted into the Kansas Wesleyan College, which was affiliated with the Methodist Church and he was a part of it. He was involved with the youth group, yada, yada. While in college, he joined a fraternity and he really enjoyed partying, which was vastly different from the person that he was in high school because he was like this quiet little boy. Douglas mentions briefly that Dennis became a peeping Tom in college, but this aspect of his life isn't explored, at least not in this book, and I didn't do any further research into that. It was in college, though, that Dennis began calling his crimes by project names. He'd call it Project Blank. His first project was Project Mountain Number One. He really had the urge to break into a house when he knew that no one was home because he wasn't trying to be crazy with his crimes. He was just kind of trying to live on the outskirts of, of crime. He just wanted to commit like small crimes or at least, you know, whatever. And he chose a house in Salina, Kansas. 
He waited around until he knew that no one was home and then he broke in. What he enjoyed about breaking into houses was the idea that he was stealing the owner's power just by virtue of him being there. Then on this occasion, he went rifling through the woman's underwear drawer and he took a few. Before he left though, he saw a set of car keys and in that moment, he made the decision to take the car for a joyride. He got into the car and drove and he felt exhilarated. Once he got all the excitement that he could get in one night, he pulled over and then masturbated in the front seat. And then he abandoned the car. It's hard to live this type of double life and get good grades. So his grades were in the gutter and Dennis was struggling to make ends meet in college. So he got into some petty theft by stealing from soda machines and stealing pop bottles. He lasted in college all but a year and a half. And then in 1966, in an effort to avoid the draft, he decided to join the Air Force. In the Air Force, he was a radio communicator. He went to boot camp, then he went to tech school, then he was stationed in Alabama, then eventually he was sent overseas. And according to John Douglas's book, he spent some time in Turkey, Greece, Japan, and Korea. But military life did nothing to deter his excitement for control and bondage. In fact, the military was the first time where he could actually exert power over other people, and he thrived on that feeling. It was overseas where he lost his virginity to a prostitute that he met at the bars, and he loved to frequent the bars, and he was a regular John with the prostitutes. While overseas, he purchased a 22 caliber semi-automatic woodsman Colt and a camera, two items that he would later use in the commission of his murders and his other crimes. The prostitutes let him take pictures of them. And later, what Dennis would do with these pictures is he would take them to the dark room or the black room or whatever it's called for the camera people. And he would develop the pictures. And then he did this weird thing where he would draw nooses around the women's necks and then gags in their mouth and ties around their hands and ties around the ankles. Dennis would later admit doing the same exact thing with pictures of women that he'd rip out of magazines. He called these his fantasy cards. Isn't that insanity? And as you think about it, it's kind of like Dennis Rader was the OG Photoshopper because he's photoshopping these images, which I just think is crazy that these women never knew that they were part of his weird, sick fantasy. But you know, even with these fantasies and even with prostitutes, Sometimes it wasn't enough to get his rocks off and he would wander deep into the woods on base to enjoy his little me time during his bondage sessions. And again, in these bondage sessions, he imagined himself as the victim. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. 
Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. But soon, the bondage sessions, they weren't enough either. So then he turned to stalking. He would go far off base in Japan, sometimes taking a train and then a bus and then walking a little bit. And he would wind up in the middle of nowhere where he stood out like a sore thumb. He had his ropes, ties, handcuffs and his gun in his pocket. And he would spot a girl that he liked and he would follow not too far behind them while imagining all the crazy bondage type of things that he wanted to do to them. And he would talk under his breath as he followed them, like this this evilness would come out and he would follow them and talk under his breath. And I'm not sure if they heard him, but they probably thought he was a freak and ran away. And then he'd switch from girl to girl until it was finally enough. And then he'd just head on back to the military base like nothing happened. Dennis spent four years in the Air Force and then he separated at the end of his term and went back to Kansas. Once he was no longer in the military, he would look back at his Air Force days with fondness and sick jealousy. And that part right there really struck me because I know so many people, so many veterans and so many retirees who they feel the same exact way about military life. They wish that they could turn back time just to be back in the military. And that's how Dennis felt. Soon, though, after he got home, his mom introduced him to a nice church girl named Paula Dietz. And by May 1971, they got married and they bought a house in Park City, Kansas. Now, Paula was close to her family, so her parents lived nearby just a few doors down. But that didn't really bother Dennis. By all accounts, Paula and Dennis, they were the picture of marital bliss. Dennis was a complete gentleman, opening the door for Paula, jumping to help her with her coat. And they enjoyed, according to him, a pretty healthy sex life, whatever that means. Dennis later said that their relationship would have been more fun if the sex was different. Within a year of returning to Kansas, he was working for the Coleman Company and he got really into the church. It was a newly created church in his town of Park City called the Christ Lutheran Church. Dennis helped around the church as much as he could and his wife and mother-in-law, they sang in the choir. Well, in 1973, he switched jobs And he started working for the Cessna Aircraft Company because apparently Kansas is a big hub for aircraft enthusiasts and aircraft companies, etc. Well, life was looking good. He was taking night classes at the Wichita State University. But in the fall of 73, only a few months after starting his new gig with Cessna, Dennis and 500 other employees were laid off. And this would be the turning point for Dennis Rader. Quote, the monster began to squirm inside him, end quote. 
Dennis was livid. How could they let him go? He didn't know what to do because remember, he used to have those feelings like he just wanted to kill. He wanted to kill. So after he got laid off, he got in his car. He just drove, just drove, drove, drove. And the more he drove, the more that he thought about his deepest, darkest desires. And the more that he thought about his deepest, darkest desires, the more that he began to notice that maybe now, maybe now that he didn't have a job, he'd finally be able to do what he always wanted to do, kill humans. That same day, he saw a house that looked empty, so he rang the doorbell. No one answered. He snuck around back and broke in. He took in the air of someone else's house as he stood there. He felt exhilarated. And I can imagine a wicked smile creeping up on his stupid mustached face as he violated someone's privacy. This was the feeling he loved, and he wanted more of it. He looked around, and before he left, he stole a hatchet. Then he went home and just stewed in his pitiful life. And as he wallowed away, the urge to kill swelled on the inside. After losing his job, Dennis became Paula's chauffeur, at least in the winter months because she didn't like driving in the snow. He would drive her to work and then he would pick her up and he always took the same route. During this time, he was really into his detective magazines, kind of like Investigation Discovery and Oxygen Network, but in print format and a little bit creepy, I feel. I mean, I haven't personally seen these detective magazines, but apparently they'd have images of women bound and gagged. And Dennis loved these. He'd drop his wife off at work, go home and dig into his detective magazines as he masturbated, imagining himself the victim in the stories. Once reading the stories wasn't enough, though, because remember, he's escalating. He's always escalating. So he does a few things that kind of get him off. And then he's like, "Okay, I need to try something new. So once reading the stories wasn't enough, he began to write his own stories. Now, one such story reported by Douglas was called The Child Killer Who Dressed Like a Woman. In the story, a man dressed like a woman kidnapped two young girls, took them to a barn tied them up and killed them in the same manner that he would ultimately kill most of his victims. But again, once reading and writing about his morbid desires wasn't enough, he'd just jump in his car and drive. And one day after his wife was fast asleep, Dennis decided it was the night. He was finally going to grab his first human victim. After the holidays in 73, he snuck out of the house at night and went to a 24-hour grocery store. He watched women as they went in and out of the grocery store, just watching. He was looking for his perfect victim. At about 11.30 p.m., he spotted her. She parked kind of in an isolated, secluded area of the parking lot, and he watched her enter the store, and then he quickly made his way to her car. He extended his hand to try the door handle. Jackpot. It was unlocked. He quickly thought about jumping in the back seat and waiting for the woman. But then he realized so many things could happen. She could open the door to put in the groceries. Someone could help her bring the groceries from inside. And they would scream bloody murder by seeing this strange man hidden in the back seat. And in that moment, Dennis realized this was a bad idea. Too many things could go wrong. 
So he walked back to his car and went home feeling defeated. He needed to study women more closely. So he took the time when he dropped his wife off at work to sit in his car in the mall parking lot, just sitting there studying women and girls as they walked in and out of the mall. Then he decided he needed to put a kill bag together because every good serial killer needs a hit kit is what he called it. He repurposed his bowling bowl bag and filled it with his gun, ropes, tape, and a knife. This was his hit kit. He finally got the nerve to try again. And he chose his victim, a woman who worked in a bank. And every day she walked out of the bank at the same exact time, 5.30 p.m. As soon as he saw her, he made his move. He walked right up to her and grabbed her by the arm. The woman pulled back and began to scream bloody murder and she was fighting back. Oh, crap. Dennis didn't expect the woman to fight back and he was amazed at how freakishly strong she was. So he yanked her down to the ground and he got the hell out of Dodge. After he got away to safety, he thought to himself, what in the world was that? I made a huge mistake. Again, Dennis had failed because Dennis was nothing more than a failure. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. In early January 1973, the weather in Kansas was bad and it was snowy and slushy and Dennis continued his husbandly duty of dropping off his wife and picking her up. And it was during a drop-off where he noticed his next project. Project Little Max. Dennis was not going to let two failed attempts stop him. Damn it, you can fail once, you can fail twice, but he would be darned if he was going to fail again. Now, Project Little Mex was a beautiful Puerto Rican woman. He spotted her and a few of her kids jumping into a station wagon one morning. And he was drawn to this particular woman because of her dark complexion. And he said that he was attracted to Latina women. Well, Dennis had confided in someone over the years that he had been with a few Latina sex workers when he was in the military. And maybe it was that familiarity that drew him to this particular victim. Whatever the reason, though, the day after he spotted her, he began to study the family's every move. He was a stalker. He would drop his wife off at work and then he'd park near the woman's house and just watch. He got into the habit of following the woman when she got into her car 
to see where she was going. And according to John Douglas, Dennis went to the library. He did this sort of reverse stalking where he entered the family's address and then he learned their names and their phone number. He discovered that he had been watching the Otero family. But what he really wanted to know was, was a man living at the house? In True Crime Army, again, what does this remind you of? In episode two with the Colonel Russell Williams story, where he was looking for signs of a man, he would break in to see, does a man live here? Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go back and listen to episode two. Well, after stalking the family for a few days, he never saw a man. And so he thought, you know what? A single woman, a single mom, this would be the perfect target because a mama bear would do anything to protect her cubs. And he thought that after two failed attempts, this was a good choice, particularly because the house was a corner lot and it was a little bit away from the neighbors. So on January 15th, 1974, Dennis dropped his wife off at work and then he drove to a nearby mall and parked his car. Then he walked to the Otero family house located at 803 North Edgemore Street. It was a frigid morning and Dennis was wearing his Air Force issued parka and he got to the house and he didn't stop. He just made his way straight to the backyard. He didn't want to see, he didn't want anyone to see him. As he approached, he noticed paw prints in the snow and it stopped him dead in his tracks. What? He didn't know the family had a dog. And in that very moment, he thought about turning around, but he decided to go on with his plan. He walked over to the phone line and he cut the wires with his knife. Then he put a stocking over his face. And just then, as Dennis stood in the cold, giving himself a pep talk, the back door swung open and it was nine-year-old Joseph Otero Jr. He was taking out the trash. But before the door could close, Dennis yanked Junior and walked inside. Inside, Dennis saw something he would have never imagined. He saw 38-year-old Joseph Otero. And he was not a small guy. Of all the times that Dennis had played this out in his head, the last few days and the last few minutes, he had never seen Joseph. So why was he here now? Now, Joseph had recently retired from the Air Force and moved his entire family from his last duty assignment in Panama to Kansas. And when Joseph saw Dennis standing there, Joseph laughed. He thought that his brother-in-law was playing a joke on him, like, man, stop messing with me. But Dennis then brandished his gun. And then quickly, 34-year-old Julio Otero came rushing in and said, please don't hurt us. Take whatever you want. Take whatever you want. Standing there was Joseph Sr., Julie Jr., an 11-year-old, Josephine. It was then that the kids began to cry and Joseph realized this wasn't a joke. Now, Dennis was visibly shaking, unsure of what to do. He went into this whole ruse that he was that he had just escaped from jail. He needed some money, some food and a car. He wasn't going to hurt anyone. So Joseph Sr. asked his family, hey, please calm down. But Joseph could have never imagined the horrible fate that awaited his family. Everything happened so quickly. Dennis told Joseph to put his wallet on the table and Joseph, oh, okay, fine, here's my wallet. And then Dennis ordered everyone to the back room. Just then, Lucy, the family's German shepherd, came rushing in. And Joseph, in an attempt to de-escalate the situation because he didn't want the dog to get crazy, asked Dennis, please, let me put the dog outside. And Dennis allowed it. The family was then 
ushered to the back room where they were told to lay on their stomachs on the bed. Now, Dennis was freaking out. He knew he had to incapacitate the father first. So he told Joseph to get on the floor and then he wrapped Joseph's wrists with tape. And as he was doing this, Dennis was making some small talk, asking them their names and what they did for a living. And I have heard before that during this small talk, Joseph told Dennis that he was just retired from the Air Force. And Dennis was like, oh, I was in the Air Force too. And so they kind of chatted back and forth about their experiences as military men. And so I can only imagine that Joseph could have never imagined that a freaking brother in arms would commit the heinous crimes that he was about to commit. So once the small talk was kind of over and Joseph was tied down, Dennis moved on to Julie Otero, the mother. He tied up Julie and she complained that it was too tight. And then Dennis actually loosened the ligatures a little bit. And then Joseph Sr. was on the floor and he started complaining that his ribs were hurting because he had been in an accident. So then Dennis kindly put a pillow under Joseph's head to alleviate the pain. Then he tied Joseph's feet to the bedpost because allegedly Joseph Otero told him, hey, it's okay, just tie me to the bed if you fear that I'm going to do something crazy. So that's what he did. After Joseph had both his hands tied and his feet tied, Dennis proceeded to gag everyone in case they tried screaming. Then he left the family alone as he pilfered around the house. So Julie, even though she was gagged, she was able to yell out and tell him to take whatever he wanted. Now, as Dennis frantically tried to figure out his next steps, he poured the contents of his hit kit on the couch and he knew this was it. Excitement filled him on the inside and his sick, twisted fantasy was finally about to play out with this family of four. Dennis walked into the room, walked straight up to Joseph Sr. first. He put a plastic bag over his head. Then he tied a cord around his neck and pulled and pulled and pulled until Joseph stopped kicking. Then he turned his attention to Joseph Jr. At that point, the family knew that he wasn't there just for money and food. So they all panicked and got louder and louder and louder. And this caused Dennis to just panic even more. And Julie and Josephine were loud and Dennis tried to cover their mouths to keep them from screaming. But by this point, Joseph Sr. was coming too and he had bitten a hole through the plastic bag that was now smothered in vomit. And I imagine that the vomit was from being strangled and then from the fear of knowing his entire family was being attacked. And then from the corner of Dennis's eye, he could see Junior, whom he had presumed dead because he had strangled him at some point after he strangled Joseph Sr. But little Junior wasn't dead. He began to move. Now, Dennis is sitting there thinking this isn't going as planned. Dennis had always imagined that killing would be easy. But the Otero family, they had the will to live and they weren't going down without a fight. Now, little Josephine was begging Dennis to leave. Please, please, please. She was only 11 years old, but she pled, just leave, just leave. We won't tell anyone, I promise. But Dennis had dreamt about this very moment his entire life. Now, Dennis quickly turned his attention to Julie and Josephine wailed. She's just going to sleep, Dennis assured the young girl. And once Julie went limp, he turned his attention to Joseph Sr., but this time he put a t-shirt over his head and covered it with a new plastic bag and tied it tight. There was no way that Joseph Sr. would be biting his way out of this t-shirt. Once Joseph stopped moving, 
Then Dennis moved over to Josephine and put the rope around her neck as she cried, Mama, Mama. But Dennis showed no mercy. Then he needed to ensure that Julie was dead, like dead, dead. So he tied a rope around her neck. And just then, Julie opened her big brown eyes and said, quote, May God have mercy on your soul, end quote, as she took her last breath. Oddly, that statement would haunt Dennis for the rest of his life. He was so spooked that he put a pillow over Julie's face. Now, Dennis looked around the room. Ha, yes, his life's dream finally realized. But wait, Joseph Jr. appeared to twitch again. And Dennis thought that he was playing dead. So he went over to little Joseph, put a t-shirt over his head, followed by a plastic bag, just as he had done to his father, and strangled him. Joseph Jr.'s last words were, quote, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, end quote. Joseph Jr. then fell to the floor. Sick excitement filled Dennis when he realized there was one more fantasy he wanted to play out. Guys, this is that part where I told you that it gets really, really sick, more sick than what we've already just heard. So beware. Dennis picked up little Josephine and took her to the basement. He pulled down her undies. But just then, he realized he needed to do a quick cleanup job upstairs to make sure he didn't leave anything behind. He went upstairs and he moved Junior to his bedroom on the floor. He picked up his hit kit and went downstairs. At the bottom of the stairs was Josephine, with her eyes open, terrified. Dennis then put a noose around her neck and he hung her from an exposed pipe in the basement ceiling, but he let her feet barely touch the floor. Little Josephine asked, quote, are you going to do to me what you did to everyone else? End quote. And Dennis just replied, don't worry, baby. You'll be in heaven tonight with the rest of your family. Then he yanked up the rope that was holding her neck up off the ground with one hand while he masturbated with his other hand before ejaculating on little Josephine's leg. Then he heard the jiggling of the mailman messing with the mail outside. But before he left, he cranked up the heat. He grabbed the family car keys on the way out and jumped in the car and sped off back to the mall parking lot where he had left his car. He got in his car and took inventory of his hit kit. Oh, crap. He was missing his knife. What in the world, Dennis thought? Dennis thought, I have to go back. So Dennis drove his car back to the Otero house where he retraced his steps and found his knife out back next to the phone line. After the murders, Dennis explained a pounding headache that filled his head and his ears, almost like the high of coming off of a roller coaster that rattles your brain. Now, Dennis went home and he began to think, uh, the cops are going to be here any minute. So as soon as Dennis got home, he went into his weird detective magazine stash and all of his bondage drawings and he burned them in a pit behind his house. Now, he stripped all of his clothes and hid them in his parents' house and he contemplated what to do with his Air Force parka. But he looked at it and he said, you know, I really, really like this parka. It's kind of cold out. I'm not going to hide it. I'm definitely not going to burn it. And, and, you know, there's not that much blood on it. So I'm just going to keep it. <laughs> what the heck, guys? This guy is such a freaking weirdo. I can't take it sometimes. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, the Otero house was filled with silence. That is, until about 3.30 p.m., when the door of the Otero family swung wide open and the three older Otero family children piled in from school. Yup, Julie and Joseph Otero had five kids, 15-year-old Charlie, 14-year-old Danny, 13-year-old Carmen, 11-year-old Josephine, and 9-year-old Joseph Jr. By the time Dennis arrived that morning, the three older kids were already on their way to school, so they had escaped a most definite death. Charlie discovered his parents. He worked to quickly remove the bags and the t-shirt from their heads only to discover his mom and dad were dead. He tried the phone, but it wasn't working because remember, Dennis had cut the line. And that's when Charlie ran to a neighbor's house yelling, help, help, my parents are dead. And the agony was just so real. Three kids now orphaned. The neighbor called the police. But I read somewhere that the emergency call came in as a potential murder-suicide. So that's what the police thought that they were walking into. They would soon discover this was not a murder-suicide at all. All right, that brings us to the end of part one of my series on BTK. Don't forget to join me next week where I will discuss the Otero family investigation and BTK's continuing reign of terror. If you haven't already done so, now would be a good time to subscribe to Military Murder on your favorite podcast app. So this way, next week, you won't miss out on part two and then the following week on part three and then the rest of the shows. All right. At the top of the show, I said where you could find me on social. And I just want to give a few shout outs to a few people who have left reviews. Okay. So Aubrey says, feels like you're present at the time of crime. Margot's storytelling skills are amazing. I get so wrapped up into each episode that I don't even realize I ran three miles on the treadmill. Only downfall is that I wish there were more episodes because I'm going through one a day right now. Ha <laughs> ha. Thank you, Aubrey. Now, Birdies No Bogies says, Great podcast. Margot is so articulate in her storytelling of these crimes. I enjoy her personality that she adds to each case. Thank you for doing this podcast. Very informative and interesting and crazy. Thank you. And one more from at least from Apple. K Ross says, Great podcast. Love this podcast. Margot is fantastic. As a prior military spouse, I'm hooked. You hear about these things while living in military life, but the inside information to these cases is so insightful. Margot says what we all want to say. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, let's see. So I've been getting a lot of I've been getting a lot of reviews on Facebook, so I just want to give a shout out. Deborah on Facebook says, Margot is an awesome podcaster. I love how she relates to her audience. Her enthusiasm is addictive. Yes. Yes, I love that you guys see that. Missy says that her wife has been listening for a while. And while on a short road trip, she had her listen. I totally enjoy true crime stories and I'm totally hooked. I love your way of storytelling. Makes me want more, more often. A job well done. Thanks so much for sharing your stories with everyone. I highly recommend this podcast. Awesome. And then let's do one more. Ray says he's hooked. As a serving military man, I find these stories amusing, but also sad. My workout go-to. Yes, Thank you guys so much. I'm glad that you guys are enjoying the podcast. I know that the stories are 
freaking crazy, but the fact that you guys are tuning in every week, I really, really appreciate it. All right, so that's it for today. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced by my wonderful listener, Jacqueline. And all of the music was created by tie-ups. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.